Hello, everybody. Everybody and uh, I am apologized for being late. I spent the last uh, half hour arguing with the computer upstairs whether it would actually decide to work or not. And since it decided that it wasn't going to, I finally gave up and had to come down and get logged in on another machine. So I'm running late. I will keep going the the half hour. So um, if you if you are on the phone, you'll be able to hear me the whole time. If you're streaming, it will cut out in about 15 minutes. Now, tonight is our World Read Aloud uh, night, uh, and we always do a special performance for it. I've read poetry. Last year, I read the beginning of Millbank, and this year, I put out a poll to see if people would rather have more of Millbank or some of Pa's Big Green Animal book. And while I didn't get quite as much response as I hoped, what there was was all almost unanimously for uh, the Paz Big Green Animal book. So that's what we're going to hear tonight. This is a book that's actually called the page now to get to the title page. It's The Polar and Tropical World, a description of man and nature in the polar and equatorial regions of the globe, two volumes in one, by Dr. G. Hartwig. And this is sold only by subscription. That means that they didn't print the books and then sold them. You went around and the salesman would sell you a copy, you'd pay for it, and then they would print them and get you the copy back, which is a fairly common uh, business model in the late 19th century. It is kind of, It kind of disappeared over the course of the 20th century, but it is now back with a vengeance in these uh, historic town books that you see. So let me uh, go ahead, and I'm going to be in Chapter 5, Iceland. And I'm going to start close enough to the Great Auk that we should be able to get to him pretty easily. In former times, Iceland could boast of forests so that houses and even ships used to be built of indigenous timber. At present, it is almost entirely destitute of trees, for the dwarf shrubberies here and there met with where the birch hardly attains the height of uh, of 20 feet are not to be dignified with the name of wood. A service tree, 14 feet high and measuring 3 inches in the diameter at the foot, is the boast of the governor's garden at Reykjavik. It is, however, surpassed by another at I'm not even going to try it, A-K-U-R-E-Y-R-E, -E, which spreads a full crown 20 feet from the ground but never sees its clusters of berries ripen into scarlet. The damp and cool Icelandic summer, though it prevents the successful cultivation of corn, is favorable to the growth of grasses so that in some of the better farms, the pasture grounds are hardly inferior to the finest meadows in England. About one-third of the surface of the country is covered with vegetation of some sort or other, 
fit for the nourishment of cattle. But as yet, art has done little for its improvement. Plowing, sowing, drainage, and leveling being things that are undreamt of. With the exception of the grasses, which are of paramount importance, and the trees, which in spite of their stunted proportions are of great value, as they supply the islanders with charcoal needed for shoeing their horses, few of the indigenous plants of Iceland are of any use to man. The angelica archangelica is eaten raw with butter. The matted roots or stems of the Myanthaces tripola serve to protect the backs of the horses against the rubbing of the saddle. And the Icelandic moss, which is frequently boiled in milk, is likewise an article of exportation. The want of better grain frequently compels the poor islanders to bake a kind of bread from the seeds of the sand reed, which on our dunes merely, uh, are merely plucked by the birds of passage. And the oarweed, or tangle, prized as a vegetable in a land where potatoes and, and turnips are but rarely cultivated. When the first settlers came to Iceland, they found but two indigenous land quadrupeds, a species of field bull. Uh, Sarah here, if you're unfamiliar with bulls, they're like mice, but um, with kind of a different snout and a very short stubby tail. A species of field bull and arctic fox, but the seas and shores were no doubt tenanted by a larger number of whales, dolphins, and seals than at present day. The ox, the sheep, and the horse, which accompanied the North colonists to their new home, formed the staple wealth of their descendants, for the number of those who live by breeding cattle is as three to one compared with those who chiefly depend on the sea for subsistence. Milk and whey are almost the only beverages of the Icelanders. Butter, they will eat no fish and curdled milk, which they eat fresh in the summer and preserve in a sour state during the winter, is their favorite repast. Thus they set the highest value on their cattle and tend them with greatest care. In the preservation of their sheep, they are much hampered by the badness of the climate, by the scantiness of winter food, and by the attacks of eagles, the ravens, and the foxes, more particularly at lambing season, when vast numbers of young animals are carried off by all of them. The wool is not sheared off, but torn from the animal's back, woven by the pe uh, peasantry during the long winter evening, into a kind of coarse cloth or knit into gloves and stockings, which form one of the chief articles of export. While at breakfast, says Mr. Shepherd, we witnessed the Icelandic method of sheep shearing. Three or four powerful young women seized and easily threw on their backs the struggling victims. The legs were then tied and the wool pulled off by main force. It seemed from the contortions of some of the wretched animals to be a cruel method, but we were told that there is a period in the year when the young wool beginning to grow pushes the old out before it so the old coat is easily pulled out. The number of head on the cattle on the island is about 40,000, that of sheep about 500,000. The horses, which number from uh, 50,000 to 60,000, though small, are very robust and hardy. There being no wheeled carriages on the island, they are merely used for riding and it's beasts of burden. Their services are indispensable, as without them, the island 
Icelanders would not have the means of traveling and carrying their produce to the fishing villages or ports at which the animals, uh, annual supplies arrived from Copenhagen. In the winter, the poor animals must find their own food and consequently are mere skeletons in spring. They, however, soon recover during the summer, though even then they have nothing whatever but grass and small plants, which they can pick up on the hills. The dogs are very similar to those of Lapland and Greenland. Like them, they have long hair forming a kind of collar around the neck, a pointed nose, a pointed ears, and an elevated curled tail, with a temper which may be characterized as restless and irritable. Their general color is white. In the year 1770, 13 reindeer were brought from Norway. Ten of them died during the passage, but the three that survived have multiplied so fast that large herds now roam over the uninhibited waste. During winter, when hunger drives them into lower districts, they are frequently shot. But no attempts have been made to tame them, for though indispensable to the Laplander, they are quite superfluous in Iceland, which is too rugged and too much interested in streams to admit of sledging. They are, in fact, generally considered a nuisance, as they eat away the Icelandic moss, which the islanders are willingly keep for their own use. The polar bear is but a casual visitor in Iceland. About a dozen come drifting every year from Iceland, Jan Mahen, or Spitzenbergen, to the northern shores. Ravenous with hunger, they immediately attack the first herds they meet with. But their ravages do not last long, for the neighborhood, arising in arms, soon puts an end to their existence. In Iceland, the orthonologist finds a rich field for his favorite study, as there are no less than 82 different species of indigenous birds. Besides 21 that are only casual visitors, and 6 that have been introduced by man. The swampy grounds in the interior of the country are peopled with legions of golden and king clovers of snipes and red shanks. The lakes bound, bound with swans, ducks, and geese of various kinds. The snow bunting enlivens the solitude of the rocky hilly note and whatever and wherever grass grows, the common pipit builds its neat little nest well lined with horsehair. Like the lark, he rises singing from the ground and frequently surprises the traveler with his melodious warbling, which sounds doubly sweet in this lifeless waste. The cider duck holds the first rank among the useful birds of Iceland. Its chief breeding places are small, flat islands on various parts of the coast where it is safe from attacks of the Arctic fox, such as the Okuri, Flattery, and Vide which, from its vicinity to uh, Reykjavik, is frequently visited by travelers. All these breeding places are private property, and several have been for centuries in the positions of the same family, which, thanks to the birds, are among the wealthiest in the land. It may be easily imagined that the cider ducks are the docious care. Whoever kills one is obliged to pay a fine of $30, and the secreting of an egg, or the pocketing of a few downs, is punished with all the rigor of the law. The chief occupation of Mr. Stevenson, the aged proprietor of V-Day, who dwells alone on the islet, is to examine through the telescope all the boats that approach, so to be sure there are no guns on board. 
During the breeding season, no one is allowed to land without his special permission, and all noise, shouting, or loud speaking is strictly prohibited. But in spite of these precautions, we are informed by recent travelers that latterly the greater part of the ducks of Vidley have been tempted to leave their old quarters for neighboring Angi, uh, whose proprietor hit upon the plan of laying hay upon the strand so to afford them greater facilities for nest building. The cider down is easily collected as the birds are quite tame. The female, having laid five or six pale greenish olive eggs, in a nest thickly lined with her beautiful down, fully removing the bird, rob the nest of its contents, after which they replace her. She then begins afresh, only this time this time only three or four eggs, and again has recourse to the down on her body. But her greedy persecutors are once more rifle her nest and oblige her to line it for a third time. Now, however, her own stock of down is exhausted, and with a plaintive voice she calls to her mate for her assistance, who willingly plucks the soft feathers from his breast to supply the deficiency. If the cruel robbery be repeated again, which in former times was frequently the case, the poor cider duck abandons the spot never to return and seeks a new home where she may indulge in her maternal instincts undisturbed. Mr. Shepherd thus describes his visit to Vigor, one of the headquarters of the cider ducks in the north of Iceland. As the, island, as the island was approached, we could see flocks upon flocks of the sacred bird and could hear their cooings at a great distance. We landed on a rocky, wave-worn shore against which the water scarcely rippled and set off to investigate the island. The shore was the most wonderful ornithological site and their nests were everywhere in a manner that was quite alarming. Great brown ducks sat upon their nests in masses and at every step startled from under their feet. It was with difficulty that we avoided treading on some of the nests. The island being but three-quarters of a mile in width, the opposite shore was soon reached. On the coast was a wall built of large stones just above the high water level, about three feet in height and of considerable thickness. At the bottom, on both sides of it, alternate stones had been left out as to form a series of square compartments for the ducks to make their nests in. Almost every compartment was occupied, and as we walked along the shore, a long line of ducks flew out one after another. The surface of the water was also perfectly white with drakes, who welcomed their brown wives with loud and clamorous cooing. When we arrived at the farmhouse, we were cordially welcomed by its mistress. The house itself was a great marvel. The earthen wall that surrounded it and the window embrasures were, com were occupied by ducks. On the ground, the house was fringed with ducks. On the turf, we could see ducks, and a duck sat in the scraper. A grassy bank close by had been cut into square patches, like a chessboard, a square of turf about 18 inches being removed, and a hollow made. All were filled with ducks. A windmill was infested, and so were all the outhouses, mounds, rocks, and crevices. The ducks were everywhere. Many of them were so tame we could stroke them on their nests. And the good lady told us that there was scarcely a duck on the island which would not allow her to take its eggs without fight or fear. When she first became possessor of the island, 
The produce of down from ducks is not more than 15 pounds weight in a year, but under her careful nurture of 20 years, it had risen to nearly 100 pounds annually. It requires about one and a half pounds to make a coverlet for a single bed, and the down is worth from 12 to 15 shillings per pound. Many of the eggs are taken and pickled for winter consumption, one or two only being left to hatch. Though not so important as the cider, the other members of the duck family, which during the summer season enliven the lakes and swamps of the island, are very serviceable. On Nat Lake, one of the chief places of resort, the eggs of the long-tailed duck, the wild duck, the scoter, the common goosander, and the red-breasted messenger, the scrap duck, etc., and other uh, others are carefully gathered and preserved in enormous quantities for the winter, closely packed in a fine gray volcanic sand. The wild swan is frequently shot or caught for his feathers, which bring in many a dollar to the fortunate huntsman. This noble bird frequents both the salt and the brackish waters along the coast and in the lakes and rivers, where it is seen either in single pairs or are congregated in large flocks. To build its nest, which is said to resemble closely that of a flamingo, being a large mound composed of mud, rushes, grass, and stones, with a cavity at the top lined with soft down, it retires it requires it retires to some solitary, uninhabited spot. Much has been said in ancient times of the singing of the swan and the beauty of its dying notes. But in truth, the voice of the swan is very loud, shrill, and harsh, though when high in the air and modulated by the winds, the note or walk of, a, of an assemblage of them is not unpleasant to the ear. Uh, it has a peculiar charm in an unfrequented waste of Iceland, where it agreeably interrupts the profound um, where it frequently interrupts the profound silence that reigns around. The raven, one of the most commonest land birds in Iceland, is an object of aversion to islanders, as it not only seizes on their young lambs and cider ducks, but also commits great um, deprivations among fishes laid out to dry among the shore. Poles to which dead ravens are attached to serve as a warning to the living, are frequently seen in the meadows. And the Icelander is never so happy as when he has succeeded in shooting a raven. This, however, is no easy task, as no bird is more cautious, and its eyes are as sharp as those of the eagle. Of all Icelandic birds, the raven breeds the earliest, laying in about the middle of March, its five or six pale green eggs and spotted with brown in the inaccessible crevices of rock. Towards the end of June, Prayer saw many young ravens grown to a good size and but little inferior to the old ones in cunning. In the gloomy Scandinavian mythology, the raven occupies a rank equal to that of an eagle in the more cheerful fables of the ancient Greece. It was dedicated to Odin, who in the traditional uh, history of Iceland informs us, had two ravens which were let loose every morning to gather tidings of what was going on in the world and which, on returning 
to, in the evening, perched upon Odin's shoulders to whisper the news in his ear. The name of one was Hugin, or spirit, and of the other, human, or memory. Even now, many superstitious um, notions remain attached to the raven. For the Icelanders believe the bird to be not only acquainted with what was going on in a distance, but also with what was going to happen in the future, and are convinced that it foretells when any of the family is about to die by perching on the roof of the house or wheeling about in the air in a continual cry, varying its voice in a singular and melodious manner. The white-tailed sea eagle is not uncommon in Iceland, where he stands in evil repute as a kidnapper of lambs and cider ducks. He is sometimes found dead in the nest nets of fishermen for pouncing upon a haddock or salmon he gets in salmon he gets entangled in the meshes and is unable to extricate himself the skins of the bird which sometimes attain a larger size than in great britain most likely from being less disturbed by man are sold at reykjavik uh, for for from three to six dollars the jar flat falcon generally considered as the boldest and most beautiful of the falcon tribe, has its headquarters in Iceland. As long as the noble sport of falconry was in fashion, for which it was highly esteemed, the trade in falcons was worth from 2,000 to 3,000 rix dollars annually to the islanders, and even now high prices are paid for it by English amateurs. The rarest bird of Iceland is not entirely in is not, if not entirely extinct, is the giant off or Gerfugel. The last pair was caught about 17 years ago near Gerfunlaskers, a group of solitary rocks to the north, to the south of the Westman Isles. Its only known habitat besides some familiar, some similar cliffs on the northeastern coast. Since that time, it has been said to have been seen by some fishermen. But this testimony is extremely doubtful, and the question of its existence can only be solved by a visit to the Gryffindors themselves, an undertaking which, if practicable at all, is attended with extreme difficulty and danger, as these rocks are completely isolated in the sea, which even in calm weather breaks such violence against their abrupt declivities that for years it must be absolutely impossible to approach them. In 1858, two English naturalists determined to at least make an attempt and settled for a season in a small hamlet on the neighboring coast, eager to seize the opportunity for storming the Garfield stronghold. They waited for several months, but in vain, the stormy summer being more than unusually unfavorable for the undertaking, and they were equally unsuccessful in the north, whether they had sent an Icelandic student specially instructed for the purpose. The giant auk is three feet high and has a black bill four inches and a quarter long, both mandibles being crossed obliquely with several ridges and furrows. Its wings are mere stumps like those of the Antarctic penguins. Thirty pounds have been paid for its egg, which is larger than any other European bird, and there is no knowing the price as the Zoological Society would pay for a live bird if this truly rara avis could still be found. The waters of Iceland abound with excellent fish, which not only supply the Icelanders with a great part of their food and furnish them 
with one of their chief articles of exportation, but also attract a number of foreign seamen. Thus, about 300 French, Dutch, and Belgian fishing sloops manned with crews amounting in all 7,000 men annually make their appearance on the southern and western coasts of Iceland, particularly those of Goldbridge Cecil, or a gold-bringing country. Thus named, not from any evidence of the precious metal, but from the golden cod harvest done at shores. English fishing masks yearly visit the northern coast. When they have obtained a good cargo, they run to Shetland to discharge it and return again for more. The Icelandic fishing season, which begins in February and ends in June, occupies one half of the male inhabitants of the island, who come flocking to the west, even from the remotest districts in the north and east, to partake in the rich harvest of the sea. Many thus travel for more than 200 miles in the midst of winter, while the storm howls over the naked waste and uh, the pale sun scarcely dispels for a few hours the darkness of night. In every hut where they tarry on the road, they are welcomed but have, but have, and have but rarely to pay for their entertainment, for hospitality is still reckoned a duty in Iceland. On reaching the fishing station, an agreement is made with the proprietor of a boat. They usually engage to insist from fishing February 12th to May 12th and receive in return a share of the fish which they help to catch, besides 40 pounds of flour and a daily allowance of sour curds or skier. All the men belonging to a boat generally live in the same damp and narrow hut. At daybreak, they launch forth to brave for many hours the inclemencies of the weather and the sea, and while engaged in their hard day's work, their sole refreshment is the chewing of tobacco or a mouth of skier. On returning to their comfortless hut, their supper consists of the fishes of inferior quality which they may have caught, or of the heads of the cod or the ling, which are too valuable for their own consumption. These are split open and hung upon lines or exposed to, on the shore to the cold wind and hot sun, and this renders them perfectly hard and keep good for many years. It is this dried state the cod is called stockfish. About the middle of May, the migratory fishermen return to their homes, leaving their fish, which are not yet quite dry, to the care of the fishermen on the spot. Towards the middle of June, when the horses have so far recovered from their long winter's task as to be able to bear a load, they come back to fetch their stick stock, which they convey either to their own homes for the consumption of their own families or to the nearest port for the purpose of bartering it against other articles. Haddocks, flatfish, and herrings are also very abundant in this. And along the northern and northwestern coast, the basking shark is largely fished for all summer. Strong hooks baited with mussels or pieces of fish and attached to chains anchored at a short distance from the shore serve for the capture of the monster, which is scarcely, if at all, inferior in size to the white shark, though not nearly so formidable as it rarely attacks man. The skin serves for making sandals. The coarse flesh is eaten by the islanders, whom necessity is taught not to be over nice in their food. The liver, the most valuable part, is, stew is stewed for the sake of its oil. We had observed, says Mr. Shepherd, that the horrible smell, which infested uh, varied in intensity as we approached or receded from 
a certain black-looking building at the northern edge of town. On investigating this building, we discovered that the seed of the smell was to be found in a mass of putrid shark livers, part of which were undergoing a process of stewing in a huge copper. It was a noisome green mass, fearful to contemplate. The place was endurable only for a few seconds, and yet dirty-looking men stirred up the mass with long poles and seemed to enjoy the reeking vapors. The salmon of Iceland, which formerly remained undisturbed by the inhabitants, are now caught in large numbers for the British market. The small river bearing the significant name of Laxa, or Salmon River, has been rented for the trifling sum of a hundred pounds a year by an English company, which sends every spring its agents to the spot well provided with the best fishing apparatus. The captured fish are immediately boiled and hermetically packed in boxes, so they can be eaten in London almost as fresh as if they had just been caught. The mineral kingdom contributes but little to the prosperity of Iceland, and it affords neither metals, nor precious stones, nor rock salt, nor coal. For the seams of suturebrand or lignite found here and there are too unimportant to be worked. The salt fortress of Karisku and Hasukvik, though extremely interesting to the geologists, likewise furnish sulfur in too impure a condition or too thinly scattered to afford any prospect of being worked with success, not to mention the vast expense of transport over the almost impassable lava tracks that separate them from the nearest port. In 1839 to 1840, when in consequence of the monopoly granted by the Neapolitan government to a French company, sulfur had risen to more than three times its usual price, Mr. Nudson, an enterprising Danish merchant, undertook the work of the mines at Kersenavik, but even then it would not answer. In 1859, a London company, founded by Mr. Bushby, Having, uh, who, having explored the sulfur districts, had raised great expectations on what he considered their dormant wealth, renewed the attempt, but after a year's trial, it was abandoned as perfectly hopeless. The Sulfur Trust of Iceland, says Professor uh, Sortopolis of Walterston, cannot compete with those of Sicily, where more sulfur is wantonly wasted and trod underfoot than all Iceland possesses. Annually, annually furnish scarcely more than 10 tons. The sulfur mines of Sicily produce at least 50,000 and, if necessary, could easily export double the quantity. As coal is too expensive a fuel for any but the rich in the small seaport towns in peat, though no doubt abundantly scattered over the island, it is dug only in a few places. The majority of the people make use of a singular substitute. The commonest is dried cows and sheep dung. But many poor fishermen lacked even this spicy material, and it's vain to use the bones of animals, the skeletons of fish, or dried seabirds, which, with a um, stoical contempt for his olfactory organs, he burns, feathers and all. There is, however, no want of fuel in the privileged spots where driftwood is found, and here the lava hearth of the islander cheerfully blazes either with the pine conveyed to him by kindly polar currents in the Siberian forest, or with some tropical trunk wafted by the Gulf Stream over the Atlantic to his northern home. And so we got off to a rocky start. That was some of Pa's big green animal book, part of the chapter 
on Iceland. I hope you've enjoyed reading with me, and I hope you've appreciated the full reading, If I, you, even if I did stumble over a few words. Thank you for joining me tonight, and I hope you will join me for the next episode of Trundlebed Tales and for next year's World Read Aloud Day special program. Trundlebed Tales saying, go and brighten the corner where you are. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.